Hello and welcome to season five of the Travel Diaries podcast. I'm your host and travel and entertainment journalist, Holly Rubenstein. And here each week, I'll be speaking to a very special guest about the seven chapters in their life's travel diaries. From their earliest childhood travel memory and the first place they fell in love with to their hidden gem and what's at the top of their travel bucket list. We'll be uncovering their adventures around the world and the travel experiences and destinations that have shaped their lives. Well, it's great to be back, of course. Yet again, it has been an extremely tough few months for the travel industry and for keen travelers like we all are. But I'm here to focus on the positives this season and start to really get your travel juices flowing as travel gradually begins to open back up again. I've listened to some of your feedback and you've asked to hear a little bit more about my own travels. So I'm going to give you a taste of my travel diaries at the start of some episodes. I've been really lucky to do a fair amount of UK-based travel since we last spoke. Starting with Babacoon Bay on the South Devon coast near Torquay. Oh, my first proper trip to Devon, I was heading to the Carey Arms, a hotel that has been on my travel wish list for years because of its incredible situation. To get to the hotel, you wind down a steep cliff lane and a view of the English Riviera just unfolds before your eyes. You see this secluded, sheltered bay with the clearest turquoise water, really Mediterranean looking. And at the shoreside, there's the Carry Arms itself, a quintessential West Country pub with rooms and suites. And then there are little cottages and beach huts dotted up into the hill. I stayed with my family in their newly opened Fox's Walk cottage. It was a real treat. At the other end of the bay is the Babacoom Cliff Railway, built in 1926. So lovely. It's a funicular that shuttles tourists up from the beach into the village of Babacoom itself. And when you're up there, gosh, the dramatic sea and mountain views of Babacoom have a real Santorini feel, but with Greek salad, you know, swapped for fish and chips. Check out my Instagram at Holly Rubenstein for lots of pictures of my stay there. It definitely gave me a taste for more travel in Devon. And next week, I'll be heading further west to Cornwall. Okay. Let's get on to today's guest. He was on the original Travel Diaries dream guest wish list when I first started. And finally, we met at the beautiful Kensington Hotel in London in their new Brompton suite. He's a broadcasting legend and has presented some of my favorite travel series too. It is, of course, Sir Trevor MacDonald. Sir Trevor was born and raised in the West Indies on the island of Trinidad. And so the Caribbean is, of course, a big feature in his Travel Diaries today. He began his ascent to journalistic stardom over there, working as a radio reporter before moving to London to work for the BBC. He went on to join ITN and became a household name as the first sole presenter of the News at 10 and the first black news anchor in the UK. Now, at 81 years old, he tells us about interviewing some of modern history's most revered and reviled figures. From the pressure of being the first person to interview Nelson Mandela after he was released from prison, to traveling to Baghdad to grill Saddam Hussein in his palatial home. It's no surprise that Trevor became the most accoladed news broadcaster in British history. We're heading today on a journey across North America, Australia, the Middle East, Europe and Africa. So let's get started. Sir Trevor MacDonald, welcome to The Travel Diaries. It is such an honour to be with you today. How are you? I'm very, very well and how very kind of you. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Oh, it is such an honour. In these slightly strange circumstances, I, like we're sitting at the end of a table, Probably either end. socially distanced. <laughs> we are, even though we were just saying that you have, you've yeah. been doubly vaccinated and I've just had my first jab. So we're on the, we're on the road to... Uh, the end. We hope. We yes, hope. We yes. hope so. And we're speaking just a couple of days after hospitality is starting to open up, which is exciting. It is terribly exciting. And do, do you know what I've, I've felt that as we've got closer and closer to the easing down period, we are reflecting more and more about what had gone on. Mm-hmm. I was out to, to, to lunch the other day. And I realized it was the first proper lunch I'd had for 14 months outside. You know, yeah. that, that's astonishing yeah. in London yeah. um, and in the life that, you know, I lead. 14 months. It's quite weird, isn't it? I find that it's like 
um, that year has been almost erased from my memory as well as being such yes. an important time. I think that I haven't seen my friends for only a few months when actually it's been a year and a few months, but it yes. was, it was like a weird speeding up and slowing down of time at the same time. Yeah. And as I say, it's, it's, you know, paradoxically you, you, you began to think about it more as the time for the easing up of, of the lockdown came closer. Mm. You, you then starting to reflect, do you know, well, I haven't, yeah, I think I might, might go out tomorrow evening. I haven't been out for such a long time. How long has it been? More than a year. Yeah. yeah. Amazing. So thinking about your travel diaries, I mean, you've been to so many different places. There's just so much that we could cover. I would just really would love to ask you, we, we, we begin with your earliest childhood travel memory, but you grew up in Trinidad in yes. the Caribbean, which of course is far away from here and makes you know, this kind of place that I dream of being right now. Um, what was it like? Tell me about life growing up there. It was quite a, a, um, a wonderful childhood, really. But I've since thought that some of the, all the things that we enjoyed and the thoughts we had about the places we lived in, um, all that was based on the fact that we didn't think of traveling, for example, you know, abroad, um, because the sun sh shone for almost 300 days a year. Mm -hmm. There was a rainy season, which was not always very pleasant. But generally speaking, it was bright and you could swim in the sea, you know, 300 days of the year. And it was about 80 degrees. So this was really, really nice. <laughs> um, so the need for, for, for travel didn't sort of impinge on the consciousness to that degree. And then I thought, I've thought in my older life that what that all disguised was the fact that we gave ourselves that narrative. We said, we live on a holiday island, so what's the need of going further? The narrative was slightly false. The truth was, we couldn't afford to, in my case. Mm -hmm. um, and so we made that the, the excuse for not going anywhere. In fact, we, we couldn't afford to go very many places. In my, my first experience of traveling out of Trinidad, where I lived, was to go to the island where my father was born, which was Grenada. Right. My father always teased us that the beaches in Grenada, he came to Trinidad to, to work in the oil industry. Right. Um, the Grenada was, you know, mainly agriculture. Trinidad had oil. So many people from the small islands came to work in Trinidad, and my father did. Um and um, and that's where he met my mother and 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 so on and he always said of course our beaches in grenada are much much better than anything you have here so my first um my first travel experience was to grenada to see whether my father was right i and i did this way after i was 18 or something so that was my really? you know almost the first time yeah. i i went abroad so as i say you know we lived with sun and sea and and fun and all that really we were telling ourselves that this is paradise the truth was we couldn't afford to leave paradise to go anywhere else mm. um we, we we didn't have the money to do it and um but we did you know we, we we enjoyed all the all the the you know everything that the climate had to offer so did you live a kind of outdoorsy, beachy oh, childhood? We're, we're very outdoor. We played, yeah. you know, from day to night, we played games, even on some of the, small, the lesser used roads. We made into cricket pitches and we dug up bits of ground and flattened it out to play football. And we played with tennis balls and with golf balls and anything we could find. And um, yeah, we, we, we had a good, a, a good time. It was a very... It was a very communal uh, thing. You know, you knew who your neighbors were. Mm -hmm. And to some extent, people looked after each other. I was told, you know, if I was on the way to school and, you know, somebody, I could see somebody on the other side of the road, he was probably somebody known to my father. So you had to always greet them. 
you couldn't pass by without saying anything. Or he would go home and say uh, to my father, I saw your son and he didn't acknowledge me at all. And my father would say, you know, you must always acknowledge people from the village because um, if you get into trouble, they might be the people who might come to your rescue first of all. So, you, you know, be, be And your kind. best behavior. And um, for a, a child like, I was sort of rather bookish and absent-minded. And so I would... Uh, you know, fail in in acknowledging neighbors quite a lot. So I got told off quite a lot about doing that. So you say that you were kind of bookish. At what stage did the desire to become a journalist kick in? Do you know, I can't really remember the precise stage, but I listened a lot to the BBC World Service. Mm -hmm. And I heard these people... Um, and you must, you know, you have to picture yourself on a tiny island, 4,000 miles away from London, a, a long way away from anywhere. And I listened to these people reporting from Moscow and Johannesburg and Beijing and, and um, you know, from Southeast Asia and all these places. And it occurred to me that they were getting front seats at big international events. And it also did occur to me that somebody was paying them to do this. And I thought, this is not a bad idea. You know, so you travel, you stay in nice hotels, yeah. you, um, you, you attend big summit meetings between Moscow and Washington, and um, you say what's happening, you talk to diplomats to find out what's happening. It really intrigued me. But I think it intrigued me more because we were so far away and so isolated. And such a tiny dot in a huge world i think people who live in on, on small islands are not always introspective they look outwards mm -hmm. you know and they want to they, they want to see what's out there and 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 what you could do out there and that that that's what i wanted to do it it didn't go down well with my parents no um i came from the generation where you were supposed to be a doctor or a lawyer yeah or an engineer mm -hmm. you, you know um the other thing is my parents had no concept of what journalism was all about. I mean, I don't think my father had heard the word before um, really? Before I became, you know, um, they had very rarely left the West Indies. My parents came to, to England once while I was living here. But they had no real concept of what this, what I was going to do. But I think that they lived long enough to discover that I hadn't made an entire mess of my life. <laughs> I, I'm sure not. I'm sure not. So chapter two is the first place that you fell in love with. Where would that be? You know, the first place I really fell in love with, uh, again, this was in my work, and most of my travel has been in my work. Uh, holidays were interspersed, but they weren't the main ingredient of my life. You know, I traveled for work. Um, but I went to Australia to do some work once, and I thought Sydney was one of the most wonderful places in the world. In fact, I still think so. Um, and I remember very well when that thought, you know, cemented itself in my brain. I was covering an, an England cricket tour, and one of the players had been injured. And when the team moved on from Sydney, he stayed back. And I had two days off and I said, yeah, I'll, I'll stay back with you and, uh, and I'll take you to lunch. And we went down on the Sydney Harbour and it was that view where you had the Sydney Opera House to your left. We had the, 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 the Sydney, the bridge, you know, right in front of you. And just before you, you know, the beach and an armada of small boats in the sea around on a sunny Saturday morning and drinking Horton's white burgundy and mm. eating barramundi and chips. And I said to him, I said, do you know, I think we've died and gone to heaven. It's absolutely marvelous. The, the Sydney is, I, I thought it was absolutely stunningly beautiful. And mm. I, I still think so today. And there was a period in my life when I didn't want to go back there too frequently because I feared... I may never come back to London, and I didn't want really? to. I didn't. I, I liked it that that much. I had my problems with Australia generally, which is, it is very far. Yeah, I yeah. Mean, Not that easy to be a foreign correspondent no, in terms no. of long and, flights. And, I mean, it's it's a long, long way away, and it's a long way from Europe. It's very much more Asian 
mm-hmm. oriented. Mm-hmm. You, you, you know, it's much more with the know, culinary culture ex- there. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. But but yeah, I thought Sydney was, and you know, Sydney Harbour and and you know, sitting there was just fantastic. At what age did you leave Trinidad to come over to the UK? Um, and oh what gosh, made you leave? I was in my late twenties, early thirties when I came here. Yeah. Um, so I've been I've been living now. I've been, I've now lived here for much longer than I lived in the West Indies. And what brought you to the UK? What brought me? Um, everything in my upbringing was geared towards London and, and Britain. Um, for people who uh, were colonials, which is what we were in the West Indies, you know, Trinidad, um, in that great period of European expansionism, Trinidad had been colonized by the French, very short period by the Dutch, by the Spanish for a much longer time. And then in 1797, it became British and, and remained British. So everything in my life was geared towards London. My school books um, all came from Oxbridge. Um, all the, the, the local newspapers reported all the news from London. London was the metropolitan center of, of, of the world. Um, uh, of of our and certainly of our lives and um, so you know my my American friends used to say to me many many years ago why did you decide to have a career in London and not in America you know you skipped this yeah and large it's nearer con- yeah much nearer and I said because you know we we were colonials everything about our lives was aimed you know London was the center um, so we learned about. Um, you know, about Nelson and about Trafal- the Battle of Trafalgar and about Francis Drake hounding the, the Spaniards around South America. Much later on about England's role during the war and, and all that sort of stuff. Um, yeah, it was all is geared that, towards... Is that weird to you on reflection now? It, it is quite weird, especially now as there is a greater conversation about why we weren't told more about West Indian history. Exactly. Um, it wasn't always much, but it was, there was a history mm-hmm. and we were hardly told about it at all. Mm. And it was quite, quite, quite extraordinary, really. Do you think things have evolved? I think things have changed yeah. a lot and people have become, uh, you know, much more interested in, in what their lives were before 1797. One of my colleagues has been saying, uh, has been saying recently, about the Black Lives Matter movement, she said, um, I hate the, 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 the line that Columbus discovered, you know, some of the islands. She said, he didn't, dis- the islands were there before he came. And there was a story of their people's lives and a history of the place. You know, the other thing is, uh, everything that, that, that British explorers did were, were, uh, was glamorized. So mm. um, Francis Drake not only set out to hound the Spanish Armada, but he played a game of bowls on Plymouth Sound before setting out, you know. So it was a, you know, this was a great, great sort of adventure. And um, yeah, we were, we were thoroughly colonized. But the conversation has started and has become much broader now. Yeah. And your experience from living in this idyllic paradise coming to work here in the UK I mean how, how did you find adapting to to the kind of London way of life it, it was different it was made a little easier for me by the fact that I my first job I came to work for the BBC at Bush House in the you know the overseas regional service so having that, listened to the BBC kind of growing up that's was right. that kind of like a dream come true it, it was absolutely a dream come true not only was it a dream come true but I mean, I was offered a job. I, I never I didn't have to come here and look around for work. Yeah. I had come to London once before to cover a conference, the Trinidad Independence Conference, and I met people from the overseas regional service. And I said, if ever you guys have any jobs here, you must let me know. And somebody called me up from London and offered me a job. And they even paid for me to bring my books along. So That's um, amazing. What an incredible story that. They sought you out, essentially. I, they sought me out. I, I, you, yeah. you know, they called me up one afternoon. I was working then in the local radio station, mm-hmm. doing everything as a, I was a disc jockey. I did reports from the courts. I did cricket matches, football matches, polo matches, um, tennis matches. 
or everything and went to the airport to interview any important people passing by so i i i did a lot of general things in in at radio trinidad i it was wonderful that i was called him a great 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 stroke of luck when you're ready to pop the question the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring at bluenile.com you can design a one of a kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to bluenile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at bluenile.com for $50 off your purchase. bluenile.com code LISTEN. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Today's episode is supported by Airbnb. It has been a long old winter here in the UK and in between podcast seasons, I'm going to take a little bit of downtime to seek out some warmth. I'm jetting off to the Greek island of Mykonos, visiting some places that have been on my bucket list. And while I'm hopefully soaking up some Mediterranean sun, my home will be hosting guests from all over the world thanks to Airbnb. It's the perfect way to make your travels even more rewarding. Instead of letting your home sit empty while you're off exploring new destinations, why not turn it into a cozy retreat for fellow travellers just like I do? Whether you choose to rent out your entire space or just a spare room, it's up to you. I list my spare bedroom and it's been a fantastic experience, both financially rewarding and a great way to connect with new people. So if you're planning your own summer getaway or any trip for that matter, consider putting your home on Airbnb. It's a fantastic way to earn extra income that can go towards your travel expenses, souvenirs, or even that special treat you've been eyeing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.co.uk forward slash host. Thank you to Airbnb for supporting the Travel Diaries. So moving on to chapter three, that is the place where you learn the most about yourself. I always think that the place I learned the most about myself was probably when I joined ITN and was sent to Northern Ireland. This was in the early 70s. It was partly my own doing in that I had no idea really why ITN had hired me. I was the first black um, reporter they had hired. And I remember very well that, and I tell this story with some trepidation now because part of it sounds incredible, but I went to ITN, I did an audition, and I was offered a job. And I said to them, I need some time to think about whether I really want to do this. And I went back to Bush House and my colleague said, how did it go? And, you know, how did you get on? And I said, well, I've been offered a job, but I told them I wanted some time to think about it. And they said, you bloody fool, call up now and tell them you would like the job. Because I didn't, and I was terribly worried about why I was, uh, why I was employed. So you were reticent to accept the job because you were worried for what reason? Well, I was worried about, you know, I, 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 it, this was to to be a television report in Britain. Mm. Um, it was a little beyond what I had marked out for myself. I could see myself at Bush House as a radio producer, right? But I couldn't, you know, quite picture what I would do at ITN. Although I wanted, you know, I'd seen their work and I wanted to be part of it. But I was worried about why they hired me, and I didn't want to be the token. Um, black West Indian person that they hired. So I said, I want to do everything that everybody else does. Mm -hmm. And the big story at the time was Northern Ireland. Every night it was Belfast and more bombs and bullets and violence. And I, I say I learned more about myself because I was terrified when I went to Northern Ireland. I'm, I'm a, not a brave person. I think I describe myself as a coward. And 
I could can't I, imagine that's true. Well, I and I suddenly found myself in the middle of a place where there were bombs and bullets and and people were killing each other and every night there was a disturbance and you know you grew accustomed to the sound of bombs going off, you know, and the 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 the, the first line of your commentary was always you know, the bomb went off at five. Well, for the listeners who are perhaps younger and actually don't remember this, can you just give a brief overview about what was going on at that well, time? You know, there was just mayhem and murder and killing and dreadful, dreadful scenes. And it was all happening within close distance of where you were. Yeah. I mean, the hotel in which we stayed, the Europa Hotel, um, was bombed about six times and, uh, you, you know, while we, I was there and we were always given enough time to get out. But, you know, I was absolute. I'd never heard a bomb go off in my life. Mm. I'd never heard uh, about a Kalashnikov rifle. I didn't know what that was. I'd, I'd never seen so much killing. I went to a house one evening where a, a little child was telling us about how the gunman came in and killed two people in the household. I mean, it was f- absolutely frightening. And I learned about myself because I learned a little bit to conquer fear and to survive and to work in mm. such an environment. We all yearned for something better. And so we we really latched on to the peace people. I went to, they won the Nobel Prize. So I went to, with them to Europe to collect the prize and we you know really really felt that it's time for a change and and we wanted to see some political movement and but but the predominant noise the predominant you know in the environment was violence and and um, I'd never I'd never forgotten it and the way some of these explosions were they the people who planted the bombs would always give you notice you know oh, really? they said we're what to journalists? And so you can get out. So I spent a lot of my time standing outside buildings waiting for it to explode. And as I say, you know, I never heard a bomb go off before in my life. Um, we don't do that in the West Indies. No, no. And I mean, you went on to cover many other conflicts and yes. put yourself in, you know, innumerable other sketchy situations. Um, yeah. How did you process that you know now that 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 isn't part of your everyday life I mean has it left you with any trauma or scars I I find that I still reflect on it and I can't entirely get it out of my mind it's always part of me now I I went on to go to Beirut in the Middle East in the bad days when you know that was um you know difficult to to survive in and I it never leaves you. It it's it's like a stain on your shirt or your jacket, and and the slightest thing, you know, triggers, you know, very very strong memories of of those times. It hasn't, you know, uh, affected me very much. I I have a glass of wine and forget about it all. But um, but uh, but it it you ne- you never. It's part of your life. It's part of my life now, and. Um, I, I never forget it. So, of course, I have to ask you about one of the most momentous interviews of your career, interviewing Nelson Mandela just a few days after he was released from prison. The global exclusive interview, first interview, right? Yes, it was. I, I managed to, to do the first interview. A momentous um, responsibility. It, it, <laughs> I, it was one which... You know, I usually worry about interviews anyway. Um, I think if you get them right, they are the, it's the stuff of good journalism. It's, we all do the same thing. I mean, to report, you have to find out what's going on. So you interview people all the time. But of course, to be given the chance to interview somebody like Mandela, who had been away for 27 years, nobody had seen him. Nobody had heard very much from him. We knew about him and we knew he was in prison on Robin Island, but nobody had seen him. And my first thing was, you know, just, you know, how did he look? You know, he was in a gray suit and came out. And I thought that I could easily navigate my way through this interview because the great, great question was, would he, having spent so much time away, be able to come out of prison 
and actually make some meaningful change happen in the in the country mm. and i knew south africa pretty well because i'd been before he he was released and i always thought it was going to be terribly terribly difficult for anybody to change that system and so i you know my main thrust of the thrust of the interview with him was how how are you going to do this these people have been in power for a number of years and they're very reluctant to give it up how are you mm-hmm. one person and the anc of course going to change it and i will never forget that he kept saying if you're prepared to sit down and talk seriously everything is possible and i said no 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 everything is not possible i said you may got get some peripheral changes but fundamental change is going to be terribly difficult and he said again if you're prepared to sit down and talk seriously everything is possible and he turned out to be right did you believe him at the time i i didn't i didn't i i couldn't see how it was possible and curiously many many years later i was back there and i met somebody i'd never met before who was his one of the general secretaries in in the ANC who were closely with Mandela and they said they had their worries about him they they said you know we said to him we've been fighting for our our freedom um you've come out and you say we can achieve something what guarantees did you get and he said well i didn't get any guarantees yeah and they said well how are you going to do this and why do we stop fighting and and believe you when you haven't have you been given any assurances about one man one vote and he said no and they said well how is this thing going to work but in fact do you know he he was very skillful and he had a great great deal of support from people like archbishop desmond tutu and of course the majority of the black population in south africa you know who were about 80% of the population but had no political or voting rights before mandela was released so it, yeah it was a i i couldn't get over to how dignified he was i kept saying to him i was really and i frankly admit it you know looking for a kind of headline like you know i i was beaten in prison every day or uh, you know i kept saying you know how were you treated and 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 he said oh that's that's all in the past and i kept saying but did you you know you were deprived from your friends and family and everything else and the you know the rigor of a prison life couldn't have been easy how did you cope oh that's that's all in the past mm-hmm. many many years later i went back to south africa for the rugby world cup i think it was 1995 and we went in to interview him very early in the morning and we had the television lights turned up and he asked for them to be turned down and we we did and he asked more and more for them to be turned down and i joked and i said to him you know i said mr president he was president by then you know if we turn these lights any further they wouldn't be able to see you or me and so this wouldn't work and he said no 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 it's my eyes and he then said and this was the first intimation he'd ever made about conditions in prison he said i've had splinters of damage in my eyes from breaking rocks on robin island jeez and that's 5 years after i first met him it's oh. the first time he'd ever said he'd ever talked about any personal hardship you know from splinters had gone into his eyes and had done some permanent damage so he he couldn't face the glare of of the lights oh, i that's to me still an extraordinary story oh, um absolutely did you know and and he 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 never said it at the time on that first interview never mm. just all in the past he said we must look look forward and i yeah, i still think i was terribly lucky and very yeah. privileged to have yeah. had that honor i mean would you say that he's the most impressive individual that you've interviewed I, certainly one of the most impressive people i've ever interviewed it's the, is that his 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 lack of his his lack of bitterness it's hard to imagine isn't it if i had been put in for 7 months i would not come out so um you know as as strong minded as he was about what he had to do he he 
he, he was quite an extraordinary man. Wow. Well, moving on to chapter four, that is your all-time favorite destination. I loved working in America. Many of the places I worked in, um, you know, for lots of reasons, covering presidential elections and presidential trips and all that sort of stuff. And I, I quite enjoyed all those things. But when I wasn't working, I discovered a place outside Los Angeles, Santa Monica. Mm-hmm. And I discovered a, a hotel there which gave on to the beach and where all the, all the sort of vague idiosyncrasies of American life, you know, they would see people running around with little dogs on the beach and, you know, women on bicycles towing the dogs behind. And, and the beach was lovely and there was Muscle Beach where people... And this, this hotel shutters on the beach was just absolutely ideal and and you could go down to the end of the beach and there was an Italian restaurant there where you went in and nobody asked about what you wanted for dinner or for that, you, you know. They just, they'd, they'd put some bread on the table and put two bottles of wine on the table. <laughs> and, then, Perfect. and then they would distribute song sheets and people would start singing when the moon hits the star or whatever the song was, you know, that's, and I, th- I thought it was all wonderful. And I l- love the quiet of Santa Monica away from the noise and bustle of Los Angeles. Um, generally, um, I'd so love to move there. Santa Monica is I lovely. I love Santa Monica. Yeah. In fact, I had the last meal before I got married at Shutters on the Beach. Oh, you you didn't? Mm. How? So you know what I'm talking about? Yes. Yeah, so and I didn't get married there. I got married up in Santa Barbara. Yes. But yes. The, well, that's along the way. Yeah. Yes. The day, the night before, we had a meal there in, 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 at Shutters. I I loved it, and I had a. Uh, I always got a suite which overlooked the car park and people said to me, but it overlooks the car park. I said, no, but it's just lovely. And I can walk down. The the restaurant was lovely. and It embodies California lifestyle so well, doesn't it? You could see the Santa Monica Pier with the the Ferris wheel and the palms. That's right. The Ferris wheel was out there. Yes, yes, on on the right as I looked out. Um, Yeah, I I love Santa Monica. It was the quieter... I think more sort of dignified bit of America. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What what kind of holidays do you enjoy? Are you a kind of relaxation type of guy, or do you a culture vulture? Yeah, I'm. I'm. I, yes, I do the I, I, America too for the cultures. I mean, I you used to love um, all the museums along mm. the way, and and um, I go to more museums in America than I go to anywhere else, really. Mm-hmm. They're so well done, and all the art galleries, um, yeah. which are absolutely fabulous. Because I travel so much in my work, I, I tend to love the fact that I don't have to run about so much. So I love sitting and reading, too. Um, mm. uh, um, Taking but, a different pace. Yes, the, cool the pace down. Mm. Um, because a journalist lifestyle it is very, like, jacked up on adrenaline, isn't it's, it? It's quite mad mm. yes you're absolutely right it's quite mad and and quite difficult for partners um mm. because you know everybody wants to go out and do things i'm quite happy sitting and not not, not doing very much speaking of a, a, a kind of busy mind of a journalist i kind of wondered i mean you've had so many high profile interviews i mean me as a journalist often after an interview i'll reflect on it and pick apart, oh, I wish I'd asked that, or, you yes. know, that kind of thing. Was there ever an instance where you really felt like you got that killer question in, like an interview that stuck in your mind where you really nailed it? Yes. I mean, to be very honest, the way I've always proceeded with interviews is I, I interviewed um, uh, Saddam Hussein before the first Gulf War. And for days and days, I walked around in my my jacket pocket with a bit of paper and I would say to anybody I met I said if you were to see what would you ask and I would you know I was desperate to find the right question to ask in fact it was not a very very difficult interview in the circumstances it was it was difficult I remember in this lovely room in the presidential palace um, and he came in um, everybody 
stood absolutely still to attention as he walked in. So you're in they were, Baghdad. They were terrified in Baghdad. Yeah. They were terrified of him. Really? And, and there were about half a dozen of his inner cabinet people around. And they were sitting as close as I am to you here. And I was very discomforted by this. And I said, why, why are you guys all here? You know, don't, and I actually said at one stage, don't you people have anything else to do? And one, pe- one person took me aside and he says, you don't understand, do you? We never see him interrogated. Hmm. We never see him ask questions. Generally speaking, he speaks and we shut up and we do what he says. So they were interested in the theater of seeing him respond to questions by somebody, you know, they, they, they never knew. That made it a bit more difficult and more almost frightening, really. And they didn't make it, the, the security was intense. And um, they didn't make it terribly easy for us. So, yeah, that was worrying. And what did you ask him? I thought on your question about the killer question, the, he, Iraq had just invaded Kuwait and there was a report, which I think turned out not to be right in the end, that the Iraqis had gone into Kuwait in, a, in such an alarming way that they were taking, they'd gone into hospitals and taking, um, you know, ventilators the children off from their ventilators and all that and they were killing babies and so i asked him that question that was my killer question you know are you are your soldiers killing babies in kuwait he said mm. they, they were not he said and um <laughs> i remember as you you raised this question part of the reason for saying that was to suggest that he would say I, we knew, you know, we played devil's advocate. We knew what he was going to say. He's going to say, no, we never do that, which he did. He said, no, we're not doing that. And I would then say, um, well, there's one way to try and discover whether that's true, which is if you would let us go into Kuwait with you. Um, now, I did say that, and that was probably the maddest thing I'd ever said because Ku- Kuwait was awful, and I would never have survived going into that place. Much, much later, I was in the Pentagon, and one of the people there, while I was waiting to interview the um, chairman of the chiefs of staff, took me around to show me some images they had from Kuwait. And he showed me how when the American tanks hit the Iraqi tanks uh, with missiles, it didn't explode, it imploded. So all this metal just imploded. And I could just imagine what that meant for the people inside these tanks. And it was horrendous. And I thought I wouldn't want to be anywhere near this stuff. And that nonsense I talked about, you should let us go and see whether you were really killing babies, was absolute journalistic nonsense, really. (laughs) And um, I'm glad he said no, and I'm glad we never went anywhere near. It's quite extraordinary to kind of reflect on some of these people, like someone like Saddam Hussein. When you interview people of that profile who are known for bad things, do you ever, because I think you interviewed obviously like Colonel Gaddafi and mm. many, many other kind of terrifying people, do you ever see a human side to them? Or are they just pure like dictator? Uh, you, you, uh, when I did Gaddafi, for example, he was terribly upset about, I think one of his children was killed in one of the American uh, raids on on his his palace or his house yes i felt that was human they don't look monstrous i mean saddam was impeccably dressed in a wonderful armani looking suit and uh, proper tie and so on and and his palace was um glistened with gold and 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 all this thing so you know I, i i thought i felt his authority and he you know he he looked like the man you'd meet in the street really except that there were all those sycophants around him mm. who would do ev- every everything i i must tell you he he you know about these people you 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 hear rumors about how what their evil deeds are and one of the things i heard was that he had once taken a minister out of a room where they were conferring and shot him and then went back into the meeting as though 
nothing had happened. Yeah. Many years after I did the interview, I was coming out of a hotel in Knightsbridge and I was confronted by this large man who came up and said, you don't remember me, do you? And I said to him, and I thought I was making a kind of joke. I said, well, you know, to be very honest, I just had a very large dinner and I've had a lot of nice wine. And in any case, I'm getting much older and my memory is not as good as it used to be. And yeah. this was a way I was trying to make the question into a joke. Yeah. And he said to me, unsmiling, so that surprised me. I, he didn't think this was funny at all. And he said, I was your interviewer when you met Saddam Hussein. This was in Knightsbridge in London, many years after I'd done the interview. So I sobered uh. up quite quickly. <laughs> <laughs> and he, he, and, and I, I said to him, do you know, we had so many stories, rumors about what Saddam was like. And we always heard this story about his taking this minister out and, and shooting him. And, and this interpreter said to me, yes, it's true. He said he was my friend. He was the minister of health. And um, oh he had said something at a meeting which Saddam thought he was trying to get rid of him or something. He was in a opposition to Saddam on something. Saddam took him outside and shot him. And, um, God, I think it's probably quite good that you just thought it was a rumor at I, the well, time. Well, I mean, you, you know, the, the, the thing about what I discovered was that so much about him, Saddam Hussein, were rumors. Nobody got close to him. After I did the interview, half a dozen people from the uh, Iraqi minister, Ministry of Information came to my hotel room to see me. And I thought, you know, wow, this is a huge delegation what what could they want and they kept saying you know how was it and I, I answered I answered about the interview and I said well I asked him this and he said this and so on and they were you know they showed no interest at all what they were asking me was what was he like I had had a chance of meeting somebody for whom they worked but would never never meet hmm. it he nobody went into the the, the palace um, of Saddam not anybody who worked for him they were saying to me, you have got closer to him than we would ever. Th that was extraordinary. That and I thought that was a bit sort of odd. Yeah, you know? yeah. Um, they, they, they were asking me, they couldn't, they want to know about the interview at all. They wanted, what was he like? What, what did you think of him? Yeah. How, what, how did he look? And, and I, I said, well, you guys have been working for him for years, but they had never come close. Mad. From the kind of, ridiculous to the sublime chapter five is your hidden gem in contrast to your tales of Baghdad where is a place that you absolutely love that maybe the listeners don't know too much about do you know I don't know whether how well this is known but when I was finishing a, a, a book I went to Madeira um, the, the, this island and I don't know whether it's because I have this affinity with islands or it was so, such a place of such peace and quiet, I thought, so conducive to, to work. I actually did finish my book there. And the people were lovely. And the, the food was great. And, and the surroundings were, were wonderful. And I spent New Year's Eve there. And all the ships in the harbor were all decked out with lights. And they all sounded their, you know, their sirens and so on New Year's Eve. And I thought it was the bits of it pretty paradisic really i mean mm. you know i what does it look like madeira like what's the kind of landscape well yeah that was interesting too because it it looked it looked very dry and um and fairly arid but there were a lot, lot of green all, all, all around and how they managed that I, I i don't know but i loved it and i loved i suppose it is my affinity with islands really mm. um i i thought it was lovely 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 place to go and you've made so many travel documentaries as well in your career. So many from the Caribbean to India, as you mentioned, the Mediterranean and so on. Many of them actually with secret in the title, like a hidden gem, yes. like secret Caribbean, secret Mediterranean. Which of these destinations did you most enjoy filming in? I most enjoyed, I think, going back to the Caribbean, you, you know, it's, um, it was a long time since I'd been back when really? I made those. Uh, and it was seeing it through other people's eyes and through, you know, in almost filmic w w ways. And I discovered really how absolutely lovely people are and, and how immensely kind and, and the generosity of island people is something which I've always cherished.
Mm. And um, I think I was very lucky to be part of that. I, I really enjoy that. Yeah. What other Caribbean islands do you love? I mean, of course, it's just like quite easy to just lump it all together as the Caribbean, but each island has such a it, distinct it identity. Different. You're absolutely right. I mean, people in, in this country talk about Barbados a lot, and I know why they did. I mean, in that, as I was talking earlier about the great period of European expansionism, Barbados became British and never changed hands. And I suppose that's why people from Britain fall in love so easily with the life and the pace of life in a place like Barbados. And in a way, they're very English um, after all this time. And yes, I love Barbados too. And mm. um, it's one of the places that I do sit on the beach in, in Barbados. I, it's fabulous. And, I, you know, Antigua is another beautiful island. The, the, the Caribbean has some hidden gems. I've also spent some time in St. Lucia, which is, you know, another lovely, lovely place. Yeah, I, I look back on life in the Caribbean with great, great, great pleasure. Mm. I bet. And since retiring kind of from the daily news cycle, so much has been going on, obviously. I wondered when you're watching the news now, following the news, is there a, which story do you think that you would have really liked to have been involved in covering? I'm, I'm still hitched a lot to American stories. Mm -hmm. um, I've worked a lot in America and... Um, these days, I tell my friends only half-jokingly that my, my addiction to stories about Donald Trump um, are so, is so serious that I think <laughs> at some stage I must see somebody to, to, to cure me of this. Of this. Um, I find it extraordinary that he existed, became president, and is still seeking to be a political force in the country. I find it amazing that 75% of people in his own party, the Republican Party, believe that the election was stolen. Yeah. I find it amazing to listen to a lady I watched in a, a, a documentary the other night who said that she had left her marriage because she wanted to pursue the QAnon mission. Um, I, I find... America changing before my eyes from the America I knew. I had always enjoyed working there. I'm now almost terrified at some aspects of it. I thought the storming of the Capitol was, well, an act of insurrection, which I never thought I would see in America. Yeah. And, and, and so, yes, I spend a lot of time now on the news. I, you asked a very good question about, um, about whether... Uh, you know, I, I look down and think I would like to be there. Occasionally, on, I covered a, quite a few presidential campaigns, and occasionally I think, gosh, I would love to be, you know, on that presidential trip. Now that he's gone, do you see things improving? Well, I see amazingly that apparently his, the effect of his, his tenure in the presidency has not entirely disappeared. Yeah. I mean, I think he's changed the Republican Party in ways I would never have anticipated. And I'm shocked by that. I'm, I'm really, and you know, I watch too much of it, really. Um, we all did. I mean, I don't know about you, we were all addicted to CNN, just watching the 24-hour yeah. coverage. Yes, yeah, I'm afraid I, I, yeah. I do. Yeah. I, it's, the, uh, it's the first thing I listen to radio for in, on the radio, but about nine o'clock I watch what CNN is saying about... Um, mm about you know more stories about trump i i still find it amazing that he got to the presidency i know but the thing is is i feel like it's now the dawn i mean of course it he wasn't the first but it feels like this has opened up the door for f more celebrity politics and more kind of reality tv stars and actors throwing their name into the ring and is this what American politics is going to be about now. Yeah, I think you make a very good point because somebody was saying the other day that it's that career as a, a TV celebrity which um, has made him decide that, you know, if they turn you down once, well, you know, ask for another sort of program. And he's made that into a political, you, you know, str struggle. So he sees it, I think, through the lens of the TV celebrity star very 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 much it's quite a relief that yeah. it's not on our 
daily daily news bulletins anymore i have to say my blood pressure is a little bit lower as a result i quite agree (laughs) so chapter six is your worst travel experience sometimes it's the way you conceive of things and they don't really work out i was in las vegas with my son once and we were told that there was a plane which took you um to see the Grand Canyon, mm-hmm. and, and, and we did. What it didn't tell you is that you, in this plane, you were, for a long time, about an hour and a half, you were flying over the desert. It's very hot, and, um, you, you know, and the plane shook so badly <gasps> oh, that God. half the people were ill um, and never made it to the Grand Canyon when we got off on the other side. Oh, and um, I always remember that, and I felt so... Sorry for them. I was okay, but it, it, it was quite a horror journey about which you were not... Nobody told you that these, pla- these rides were very bumpy in the summer yeah. from Las Vegas to the Grand Canyon. And um, it was not very comfortable. And I really regretted for the people who didn't make it. Do you know, um, I have a nausea story yeah, related to the Grand Canyon as well. Yeah, have you, you, yeah. you've been? Yeah, yes. so I went on a helicopter rather yes. than a plane over the Grand Canyon. And no one told me that the helicopter would kind of swoop I, and, I, I and at, like go on the like right on the edge, you know. Yes. And um, I remember thinking, "Oh my goodness, there's yeah. an hour to go," and the, obviously there's a big drop beneath you as well. But yes. maybe that is maybe they need to make that a bit clearer to us. Yes, tourists. I thought they could have made it a bit clearer <laughs> and saying, you know, it can be a bit rough. Um, but you liked the Grand Canyon when you I got, got there. The, I thought it was the most ma- wonderful thing I'd ever Magnificent. seen. Magnificent. I thought it was stunning. And uh, I mean, I, I stood there in awe of its majesty and beauty. I, I yeah. While, was, the, while the others were uh, yes, vomiting in the back. people were being quite ill around me. <laughs> <yes>. <laughs> well, I can't believe we're on to the final chapter of your travel diary. So Trevor, that is the destination that is at the top of your travel bucket list. Do you know what I would really love to do is to spend some time in Napa Valley in America. Um, I like to, I pretend to know a little bit about wine. Mm -hmm. And um, some of the wines in in America, you, you know, because, of course, after the Russian Revolution and successive waves of unrest in Europe, Many Europeans came to live in America, a lot of Russians. And there's, uh, you, you know, there's even, I went to a, a place in Carmel, which where Clint Eastwood, the actor, was mayor once. And um, I, ha- I had, you know, something called Russian River Valley Chardonnay, which I thought was divine. And I hear you can have tours of Napa Valley. And I would, that would be on my bucket list. I mm. would would do that i've tried um some some underhand ways of doing this by suggesting i could do some documentaries there the people for whom i was suggesting these documentaries there they they recognized that if um if i was sent there i would probably never come back so so they turned me down or you'll have been drinking a lot of wine (laughs) i would have to do it on my own i think um but yes, that's, I would love to do that. That's a wonderful place to choose. And I hope that you get to make it there sometime soon. I would love to. Thank you so much. So Trevor, those were your travel diaries. What a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you very much. What an incredible life. A huge thank you to Sir Trevor for joining me on this season five opener. And thank you so much for listening today. If you've enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to subscribe on your podcast app. It's very easy to do that. Although actually on Apple, I think they've changed it so that you follow now rather than subscribe by pressing the plus sign up there in the top right hand of the app. So yeah, that's what you do now. I'd also be so grateful if you could leave a rating or a review. It really just helps other people to discover the podcast, which in turn allows me to keep making more. And don't forget all the destinations mentioned each week across all five seasons are included in the episode show notes. To find out who's joining me next Tuesday, follow me on Instagram at Holly Rubenstein. I'd love to hear from you. And you know, if you can't wait till then, there's all of the first four seasons to listen to. Thanks again. Take care and I'll be back with you next week.
Today's episode is supported by Airbnb. It has been a long old winter here in the UK and in between podcast seasons, I'm going to take a little bit of downtime to seek out some warmth. I'm jetting off to the Greek island of Mykonos, visiting some places that have been on my bucket list. And while I'm hopefully soaking up some Mediterranean sun, my home will be hosting guests from all over the world thanks to Airbnb. It's the perfect way to make your travels even more rewarding. Instead of letting your home sit empty while you're off exploring new destinations, why not turn it into a cozy retreat for fellow travellers just like I do. Whether you choose to rent out your entire space or just a spare room, it's up to you. I list my spare bedroom and it's been a fantastic experience, both financially rewarding and a great way to connect with new people. So if you're planning your own summer getaway or any trip for that matter, consider putting your home on Airbnb. It's a fantastic way to earn extra income that can go towards your travel expenses, souvenirs, or even that special treat you've been eyeing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.co.uk forward slash host. Thank you to Airbnb for supporting the Travel Diaries. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.